All right, good morning, Mercy House. How are we? I'm Pastor Tommy. I'm really glad that you guys are here with us this morning. Uh, We're continuing to work our way through the book of Nehemiah this semester. It's definitely given us a lot to chew on and meditate on. What we're looking at is how God historically rebuilt and restored his people and how he's bringing them back from their devastating low. And as you read Nehemiah, one of the major themes that uh, we're going to continue seeing played out over and over again is, is Israel's physical destruction and their desolation relating very closely to, actually, it's rep- being representative of their spiritual state and their relationship with God. So another way to look at this would be that, uh, that symptoms usually have underlying conditions. If I stood here and I had a fever of 104, I had a hacking cough, If I barely had the strength to stand, it wouldn't take a doctor to tell me, like, hey, Tommy, you look a little sick today. Um, It's not just that I have a cough or that I'm running a little bit uh, hot or that I'm just tired. Like, symptoms are not the problem, but what they do is they reveal an underlying problem. And this is one way to understand why the physical destruction of Israel and its walls is such a big deal for the people of Israel. It was a symptom of something that was far more problematic. It revealed an underlying condition of sin and broken relationship with God. Now, this is really important to keep in mind um, as we continue reading Nehemiah, because if we don't understand this, then what we're going to see as we read the book of Nehemiah is just a manual uh, for leadership and managing construction projects. But Nehemiah is doing something much bigger than rebuilding a wall. He's been praying, he's been fasting, he's pleading with the Lord to be able to be a part of the rebuilding of God's people, not just of a physical structure. You see this theme from the very beginning of the book. As Nehemiah is told in chapter 1 that Jerusalem, God's shining city, lies in absolute ruins. And Nehemiah understands that this is more than just some broken walls that need a fresh coat of paint. This is devastating news for him, and he responds accordingly. He weeps, he mourns, he fasts, and then he prays. And he prays for months on end. He prays that, that God would rebuild his people like God promised that he would. And he spends this time praying persistently. He prays constantly. He's actively waiting on the Lord in prayer. He's brainstorming and thinking about how he can be a part of this rebuilding process. And then last week, we saw that his months of prayers are finally beginning to be answered. And it's not as though God was just sitting idly by, kind of letting Nehemiah's calls go to voicemail, and finally he decides, okay, I'm going to answer these voicemails. Like, God had been sovereignly aligning and coordinating the details, which were just brought to a moment of climax in this miraculous conversation that Nehemiah has with King Artaxerxes. And in this conversation, Nehemiah asks uh, for time off to to go to Jerusalem. He asks for the king to pay for the cost of rebuilding the walls and the cities, which, uh, city gates, which is, you know, there's 10 city gates. There's two and a half miles of walls that, that are 40 feet tall. This is a major construction project. He asks for safe passage all the way there, and then he asks for a house to live in while he's working on this project. And the king says, sure, sure. And not only that, but it actually pleased the king to do these things. This is not the expectation that you would have, the response that you would expect as you're reading through the book. What we see is that God's hand was on Nehemiah the whole time. And Nehemiah makes sure that we know that he knows this reality. So we see God working through Nehemiah. God did not just show up to work in this one conversation that we looked at last week. God had orchestrated the whole conversation to begin with. 
Mercy House Midweek is something that happens on Wednesday nights. I want to encourage all of you guys to go. Last week was our first one. It was incredible. We dove into this text a little bit more, and we talked about just how miraculous it was that a, a Jew in this situation would be in this situation with the king of Persia to begin with. And so for those of us who are Christian, we, we don't believe in coincidence. God was not just sovereignly answering Nehemiah's prayer in this moment. He's, he's not just been answering prayers of Nehemiah uh, for the past four months previous to that moment, but God had answered prayers by orchestrating the birth of Nehemiah into the family that he was born into, into the city that he was born into, into the time that he was born into, to have the relationships that he had, to have the gifts that he had, to have the favor with the people that he had it with, to be equipped with deep theological convictions and a profound faith in God in order to be present and faithful and willing to be a man for such a time as this. Like, there's a lot of sovereignty in play there. And what I hope you see is that God doesn't drive an ambulance. He doesn't just arrive on the scene and see a mess and, and, and say, okay, how can, how can we fix this today? God has a plan, and he had a plan for his people. He, he had been orchestrating that for his people. He's orchestrating that for you, and that has started before you were born, and it will go beyond after you're, you're dead until the point of completion at the end of time. That's the God of the Bible. And the Bible tells us of this grand narrative that's being played out. And the story of Nehemiah is just a blip. It's a moment. It, it's a tick on the hand of God's cosmic clock, which is marching toward the inevitable and complete restoration and redemption of God's people. And this morning, we see, we get to see Nehemiah arriving in Jerusalem for the first time in his life. It's a city he's heard stories about, the beloved city of God, and the work is just about to get started. Before we jump into the text, let's pray. Pray with me now. God, just help us, we pray, to have a glimpse of how incredibly big and powerful and magnificent you are, God. Father, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear uh, and hearts to be able to receive your word this morning. Let us not just be hearers and seers of your word, but let us be doers as well, God. I pray that these truths that we're reading about and hearing would migrate from our ears through our minds and then be written on our hearts, God. We pray all of this in the sovereign, powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Starting in verse 9, read with me now. <clears throat> then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen, but when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So Nehemiah has set out on his journey to Jerusalem, which is about a four-month journey on horseback. Um, there's a couple of details I think that are important to just pull out in these opening verses, and one is that Nehemiah is traveling with the king's letters and also with a significant military escort. It includes the king's officers, a horseman, uh, and, and that's significant. This is not just a couple of bodyguards. He's got an actual military detachment that's traveling with him. So that's one thing to take note of. The other thing uh, is that we're introduced to two people who we're going to see as being thorns in the side of Nehemiah and Israel for the remainder of the book. So we're going to see these names pop up a lot. We're going to talk about them a little bit later this morning uh, because they're going to come up again. But right now, what you need to know is that uh, Nehemiah is not welcome. He's not welcome there. Perhaps maybe more importantly, the work that he's doing. We see uh, seeking the welfare of his people. That's also specifically not welcome. 
The, the displeasure of Sanballat and Tobiah, it's going to grow into hostility in just a few verses, but it is good, suffice it to say, that he has an armed escort at this time. So let's read on, verse 11. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I rose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put, a, in, put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned." And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. So Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem after his long journey, and it mentions uh, that he rests there for three days before performing a visual inspection of all the damage uh, in Jerusalem. And we're starting to see certain aspects of Nehemiah's personality. And one thing that you're starting to see in these verses is that he's very methodical and very meticulous. There are some practical points of wisdom I think we can take away from these verses as we see how Nehemiah, a pretty godly man, engages with work that he's called to do. The first thing that you see is the importance of rest as it pairs with work. So he gets there and spends three days recovering from the journey. It's a pretty epic journey, four months across the desert. I don't think this is necessarily advocating for three-day weekends to happen every single week, but I think the principle is that even the most competent and faithful men and women of God know their limitations as humans, and they know that being rested is one of the first steps to doing the work that God has called us to do. So this is a, a piece of wisdom that extends into ministry, it, in, it extends into your schoolwork, your, your secular job, your job as a parent. The reality that effective and faithful work comes from a place of faithful rest in God. Some of us might tend to rest too much, and we might tend to lean toward being lazy or a sluggard. Maybe we struggle in our procrastination to actually attack the work that God has called us to do. So I think that's one end of the spectrum that we might lean toward. Others of us might lean on the opposite end. We might not rest enough that we are more willing to jump into tasks. We're, we're going to lean on the side of overwork. We're going to anxiously execute tasks until we just burn out. And what typically happens is that people on both ends of the spectrum uh, will fall off one end and then fall on the opposite end of the spectrum, kind of like this seesaw between overwork and underwork, overwork and underwork. That's not the balance that God calls his people to. God's people are called to rest and to work developing regular cycles of rest and work on, on a weekly basis when you have a Sabbath and a day off and then other days of work, but also on a daily cycle as well where you're working during the day and resting in the evenings. So that's one piece of wisdom. Another piece of wisdom that we can glean as we see how Nehemiah approaches his work is the importance of counting the cost. Nehemiah doesn't rush onto the scene with a hammer and a bag of bricks and just starts like chipping away at the wall. That's not what he does. This isn't like a Mercy House work day where you come for three hours and they're going to bang it out with a couple of volunteers from church. Like this is going to be a multi-week, multi-month project that they're embarking on. He takes the time to travel around the city. He's assessing all of the damage. He's taking note of what it's going to take to complete the project before he invites other people into it. 
Nehemiah is prudent. He's thoughtful. He's careful. He's taking great care to actually try to do this really well, to do an excellent job with the work that God is calling him to do. Now, let me ask you a question. As a Christian, what is the difference between your heavenly calling and the work that you do each day? What is the difference, maybe in other words, between your ministry, like the ministry that God has given to you and your work at your job or as a student or as a parent? What I would argue is that there is no difference between the two, that the work that you are doing is what you have been called to do, at least in this moment. If you're a student, the Lord has called you to be a student and to learn and to take exams and do really well as a student. If you work as a software engineer, God has called you to write code behind a desk. If you're changing a baby's diaper, your baby's diaper, if you're driving your kid to school or, or, or to a sporting event, like the Lord has called you to be a parent. Now, I say this because I think some of us might sit and maybe we're just mindlessly doing the work that's right in front of us and we're pondering, man, what am I called to do? kind of waiting maybe for some sort of divine ceremony to take place, like a bestowal of responsibility from the heavens, like a cosmic coronation to the thing that God has made us to do. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't prayerfully ask, like, God, what do you want me to do with my life? What should I study in school? How can I use my gifts to best glorify you and help build the kingdom? But what we shouldn't do is gloss over the fact that God has given each of us work to do right here and right now. Like, Nehemiah is not sitting there saying, God, what are you calling me to do with my life? Like, I know you've got me on this wall project right now, but like, what is the big calling that you have for my life? So Nehemiah is taking care to rest. He's counting the cost. He's, he's doing everything the best possible way that he knows how to do it because he knows that the work that's in front of him is the work that God has called him to do. It's the work that Nehemiah was made to do, that he was ordained to do, is to build this wall. The seemingly mundane task of rebuilding an ancient wall. I mean, practically, he's a civil engineer. This is like the project that he's on. But Nehemiah, for him, this is his heavenly calling. It's his divine legacy. Now, we see it now because we're reading it as a book of the Bible, but I think Nehemiah understood and embraced the significance in the moment as well because he took that calling seriously. I think one thing I would want to communicate to you is that you are not on your way to your calling, Mercy House. So the challenge for all of us is to figure out how we live out each of our individual callings right here and right now, not on the way to something bigger and greater, being faithful to what God has placed us in right here and right now. And I'm in this with you. This is both challenging and encouraging to me personally. As you might know, I'm the interim lead pastor of Mercy House. The interim period is a defined amount of time. It will come to an end. It's not a permanent position. And so a question I've asked myself is, hey, what's the difference between an interim lead pastor and a lead pastor? Nothing, as far as I can tell. Like, practically, it's the same job. This is not some sort of stepping stone to a more permanent position. I'm not on the way to my calling as a lead pastor. Like, this is my calling right here and right now. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. 
And even spiritually, you think about this, like this is God's church. Jesus is the head. So every single pastor that you see is an interim pastor. In heaven, there's not going to be any pastors. There's no under shepherds because the true shepherd is going to be there in all his glory. So my profession is a temporary profession. Our previous interim pastor just happened to have an interim period of 22 years. It's a long interim period. I'm still trying to figure out how long mine is. I don't know. But I know that I'm here and I know that I'm fighting and wrestling to embrace it and be in the moment. Now, my prayer for you and for myself is that that you too would embrace your heavenly calling, that you would press into your work, the projects that you have, the roles that you've been given, whether you're an employee or a manager or a student or a parent or a son or a daughter or a brother or sister or neighbor, whatever that is. Maybe you're running AV in the back. Maybe you're doing worship up here. Maybe you're greeting people in the front foyer. Whatever and wherever you're at, the hope is that you would prayerfully engage with God about what it looks like for you to live out your life, your calling as a follower of Jesus. And so I want to exhort you to work hard, do excellent work with all of your might, knowing that it is the work that God has called you to do today. This is your legacy right here and right now. So ponder that. And Nehemiah is someone who has pondered that. He has embraced his calling as a civil engineer for the Lord. He's resting and working hard at living it out. And after he takes time to assess the damage in Jerusalem, he goes around he, and he comes back and look at what he does. Verse 17, then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Nehemiah finally approaches his team, which as an aside, we don't really hear much of, uh, at all about how Nehemiah was able to raise up this team of people in a city that he's never been to before. But I think there's another glimpse into the type of leader and person Nehemiah is. He's able to recruit some trustworthy people. And after assessing the damage and counting the cost, Nehemiah proceeds to give an epic rallying speech, one of the many that you see in the book of Nehemiah. And this one's actually fairly brief. And what he does in this little speech is, one, he honestly reveals the current state of things. Uh, two, he reminds them why the current state of things should not be something that they can just live with. Three, he calls them to a vision for something. And four, he inspires them to have confidence in God as they do it. So we're going to talk about each of these real briefly. But after his overnight inspection, he reveals the state of things. Verse 17, he says, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates burned. One thing I want you to notice is how Nehemiah is identifying with the trouble. He says there, you see the trouble we are in. Now, this is significant. Rewind this eight months, and Nehemiah didn't even know about the trouble. He didn't. He, it gets reported to him in chapter 1, verse 3. His brother, Hanani, says the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. But even there in that report, it's the remnant there in the province who had survived the exiles in great trouble and shame. It's still not his problem. But what Nehemiah does is he has great care and compassion for his people. 
He weeps and mourns. He then prays for months, and then he takes the steps to risk his job. He leaves his home. He travels thousands of miles across the world for four months to a place he's never been to be with a people he's never met before in order to make their problem his own problem. It's crazy. He didn't just pray and maybe send some money. Like He actually went himself. And, and what we see is that godly compassion is a relentless force to be reckoned with. If this sounds familiar, it's because it's the gospel. It's what Jesus has done for you and what Jesus has done for me. He sees us in our trouble and in our shame, in our guilt of sin. And what he does is he leaves his home, his throne in heaven. He crossed from heaven into earth, which is a far greater journey than just a, a, a across the desert. He crossed from heaven into earth to identify as one of us, to make our problem his own problem. And Jesus sits with us and is here with us, and ultimately he gives up his life for us. See, Nehemiah is a type of Christ. His heart of compassion, his willingness to sacrifice points to Jesus. And as we read through the book, we'll see how he continues to point to Jesus in other ways that he lives out his calling. But what you see here is Nehemiah honestly revealing the state of things. He reminds them of why the current state of things should not be something that they can just live in. And at the same time, he calls them to a vision. He does all this in verse 17. He says, come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem. So that's the vision of what he's encouraging them to participate in. And he says, that we may no longer suffer derision. That's the why. So come build so that we no longer suffer division. derision. Sorry. This is a reiteration of that theme I reminded you of earlier today, that this rebuilding is not about vanity. <laughs> Nehemiah reminds Israel that their current state has spiritual and emotional ramifications and, and implications, and he calls them to rebuild, not just so that they'll have some nice walls and gates to look at, but because where they're at is causing derision. They're the laughingstock of of the nations. They're, they're being mocked openly. A Bible scholar named Raymond Brown, this should be on your screens. Um, I'm not sure if it is. Do you have that slide? They don't have the slide. I'm just going to read it to you. This is Raymond Brown um, on, on his commentary in this passage. He says, far more serious than the physical desolation is the spiritual disgrace. It is a reproach to the name of God a matter for scorn and abuse among Jerusalem's pagan neighbors and visitors. The sign of those collapsed walls for well over a century has created the impression in the pagan mind that Israel's God had abandoned his rebellious people and is no longer on their side. See, Israel needs to repent and rebuild because God's name is being profaned in their rebellion. This is a hard truth, but it's not about them. <laughs> Their rebuilding is not about them. This is not therapeutic self-care, which is a message that we hear very often today. This message of take care of yourself and then you will feel better as a person. You hear this in different forms. People will say, hey, clean your room, tidy your space, and you'll feel, you'll feel less cluttered. And a clean desk is a clear mind. You heard that before? People might tell you, hey, dress up a little bit, get a haircut, stand up straight, and have some pride, and then you're, you're going to feel more confident. You're going to feel better. That is not what Nehemiah is casting as a vision. 
That's not what he's calling them to. He's not saying get yourself together because you're going to feel better once you have some walls up. He's saying, hey, we need to get our act together and get ourselves together because as God's people, in, in the expression of our faith in our life, like the, 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 the place that we are in in our lives right now is making a mockery of God. And our rebellion has caused this. We, we're sitting in the ruins of our own sinfulness and our own waywardness from God. So let's repent so that our derision doesn't steal the glory of God. One way to understand this is like a disobedient child, they do have some consequences, and it's generally not fun when you're a kid who doesn't obey. It's not fun for anyone. It's not fun for the parents. It's not fun for the kid if the kid is not able to listen. I have two kids, so I'm just saying this from experience. But that disobedience, as the world is watching in, it also tarnishes the family name. Now, that's an intense way of looking at it for a small child, but you do see this played out over and over again in the media. Like when someone gets canceled because of their less than desirable actions, it's, it's not just impacting them. Like their whole legacy, their family name is tarnished. It's diminished. It, it, it loses honor in the sight of others. Nehemiah cares primarily about the honor and glory of God and God's name among the nations that God has made much of, that, that God has seen to be as awesome as he actually is. But at the same time, he's not oblivious to the fact that when God is glorified in his people, his people are also flourishing. So children of, uh, of, of good parents, like when that child is obeying and, and, and walking in step and in line with their parents who, who are good and for their good, like they are also blessed. They flourish in their obedience. The call to rebuild is primarily motivated by a heart for God's glory and his name, but the fruit of it also blesses the people. Now, some of us, I think, need to hear these words this morning. And some of us might be sitting in the rubble of our sin. And some of us are reaping the consequences of our rebellion from God. And so I think that what we need to hear is that it's time to repent and to rebuild. Because the reality is, is if we're claiming to be Christians and we're walking in blatant sin and opposition to God, if we're professing Christ but have grown comfortable in a life of desolation, that is not a life that is honoring to God. We are tarnishing His name among the nations. That is the biggest problem with our sin, not just how it affects us, but how it affects God. And so the exhortation is to come and build for the glory of God, which also happens to benefit you. This is exactly Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 3. This is not going to be on your, I don't, I don't think the slides got in this week, but Acts chapter 3, verse 19 and 20. Uh, if you want to look at this later, jot that down, but I'm going to read this to you. Verse 19, Peter says, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. So that's the rebuilding. Like, let, let, let's clean up this rubble. Let's rebuild. And then verse 20, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And so there's this idea that when we commit to the rebuilding, it's good for us. It's good for God. When we commit ourselves to the glory of God in his name, it benefits us as his children. So don't grow comfortable and complacent in the rubble, brothers and sisters. That's what Satan wants us to do. 
The call is to repent, to rebuild, to walk as Jesus calls us to walk and to live lives of obedience to him so we can experience healing and life and restoration in the presence of Jesus, whom we're repenting back to. That's how Israel is going to experience restoration, not just in the rebuilding of the wall, but their turning of their attention and their lives back to God. So in this section, Nehemiah is revealing the current state of things. He's reminding them of, of, of why they shouldn't just live with it. He calls them to a vision. And then lastly, he inspires them to have confidence in God. This is really important. The, the vision of rebuilding that he is calling people to is incredibly costly for these people. It will require that they leave their jobs, that they leave their farms, all the ways that they make their income. They'll have to leave their homes. It will require uh, them to face serious opposition. It'll put them in a socially, even politically vulnerable position. They will risk their lives doing it. So they need a good reason to do all these things, why they can have some confidence that this is actually the right thing to do. And the reasoning that Nehemiah gives them is not in the form of a resume or CV, right? He, he doesn't tell them like, hey, I've had a lot of successful major building projects that I've overseen. I have a 100% success rate. Like, that's not what he does. He doesn't flex his civil engineering credentials. He doesn't inspire them to have confidence in him. What, what, what he could have done was to build their confidence in the king of Persia, who was this powerful hand that was backing the entire project, but he doesn't even do that. Look at verse 18, the beginning there. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. So the king there is mentioned, but it's in the greater context of God's provision and blessing over the entire project. So Nehemiah inspi inspires confidence in the people by sharing his testimony of what God has done in his life. He shares with them everything that we've been studying in these past couple of chapters of Nehemiah and how clearly God has been just miraculously a part of the whole thing and blessing it and blasting open the doors so that Nehemiah could be where he's at right now. So how do the people respond to this? Kind of a nerve-wracking moment. You get people really, you're trying to get people excited and you're casting vision you're like, all right, what do you guys think? And that, as a leader, that's the most nerve-wracking part because you have no idea how people are going to respond. Well, verse 18, this, the second portion there, it's like a leader's dream. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the work. But that was pretty easy. <laughs> there's no grumbling. There's no moaning. There's no whining. There's not even a question. They just kind of jump into it. Nehemiah's testimony of God's blessing is powerful. And when he combines that with the methodical work of counting the costs and articulating the needs of the project, combined with his prayerful meditation for why they ought to even be rebuilding to begin with, it made it all a very compelling case for the people of Israel. And what a beautiful moment of unity for God's people. For them to take a moment and just resolve together as they're sitting in the heaps of rubble and ash to say, you know what, it is time to rebuild. It's time to repent. Let's turn back to the Lord. Like that is a sweet moment of community that Israel had not experienced in like a hundred years. So this is a big deal for them. And I love the detail at the end there, the end of verse 18. It says, so they strengthened their hands for the good work. In other words, they rolled up their sleeves and they got to work. The work that God had been calling them to do. Now there are individual and communal applications for this text. 
how to apply this to our lives. We dove into some of the individual applications that there's a calling to, to not be content in the rubble, but to build our lives out of that rubble, to clear the rubble, but also to build our lives um, on top of the foundation of Christ. So that, that's like the personal exhortation towards sanctification and spiritual maturity. But there's also an application for us as a church collectively. And as a church, this is what we need to hear, um, especially as we're continuing on in this interim period as a church. There is some rubble in our church, to be sure. And so we, as the leaders, want to cast a vision for what it looks like for all of us to be engaged in the rebuilding of our church. And this is going to be happening as we go throughout the book of Nehemiah. There's going to be different things that we see that we can pull in as a church say, hey, let, let's rebuild, let's continue building and doing what God's doing here. And I hope that what you see is that when you're asked to serve, when you're asked and invited to engage with the church to care for one another, when you're asked to give and you're asked to pray and you're asked to come worship at a worship night or come to 10 days that's happening later on this week, like we're inviting you as the church to roll up your sleeves and be a part of the church rebuilding and building. Not just so that we can get back to where we were as a church, not to just fill some voids and, and do some tasks that we're just familiar with, but to glorify God and make much of Him as a church community. And also for you to be given opportunities to do the work that God has called you to do as you follow Jesus. So for, for some of you who are regularly engaged uh, in, in prayer and serving the church, thank you. <laughs> we have about 15 people in our church of 150 who do the bulk of the work. That's just how it shakes out. And so we want to thank those people. And you know who you are. I mean, you were there yesterday. You're regularly coming early and staying late and talking. Like, this is you. And, and we're just so thankful that you have always heard the call and you've always strengthened your hands for the work. And may God bless you as you continue to do that. I think for others of us who are like, hey, that's not us. That's okay, but I also want to encourage you that, like, this is it. <laughs> this is church. This is your church. I want to invite you to make this your church. It might feel like an interim period for you. Maybe you're church shopping. Maybe this is not your home church. This is not where you grew up. Uh, but you're called to the interim period in the same way that I'm called to the interim period. And so I want to encourage you, whether that's for a year or 20 years, to be engaged and to do the work that you're called to do. I don't know how long it's going to be for you. I don't think you do either. And so let us all dig in, roll up our sleeves God's hand has been upon this church. This is the inspiration and the confidence that we can have to be engaged. That God's hand has been upon this church for His glory and for our good through the years. His powerful, sovereign hand. And so will you rise up and build with us? It's my question, my invitation to you. Will you pay the cost? Will you join God's people here and strengthen your hands for the good work? I hope you do. I really do. Let's read on these last two verses and wrap up for this morning. Verse 19. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right, or claim in Jerusalem. 
doing good work, living out our following, following, uh, calling, following Jesus, it, it does not come without challenge or adversity. These three men, Sanballat, uh, Tobiah, um, and Geshem, they, they mock and they threaten Nehemiah and those um, who had just resolved to commit themselves to this task of rebuilding. So the opposition, uh, it, it comes in quick, and it's only going to intensify as this project goes on. And something to understand here is that this is not just some schoolyard name-calling calling and bullying. These three men represent significant opposition that threatens the rebuilding project uh, as a whole, but also the very lives of those who are involved. Historical sources show us that Sanballat, he's the governor of Samaria to the north. Um, Tobiah is also part of a, a powerful family in Amman, and both are historically hostile toward Judah. Okay? Then you have Geshem, uh, who's a, an even more powerful person, who ruled a collection of Arabian tribes to the south, uh, and the east of Judah. And so all three people have their reasons for why they don't like Nehemiah and why they don't like that he's there rebuilding the city. They have their own religious, political, and economic goals and agendas. But here's Nehemiah coming in with the blessing of the king right in the middle of, of, of what they're doing, and he's likely going to disrupt all of their plans for power and wealth in that region. They don't like that. And so Nehemiah finds himself finds himself in a precarious position with enemies literally all around him. And their question seems harmless enough. They're asking if um, Nehemiah and the people are rebelling against the king, which seems harmless, but it's actually an incredibly strategic and dirty accusation. Because if word gets back that Nehemiah is in fact rebelling against the king, then, then that would allow Sanballat and his crew uh, to disrupt the building and even assassinate Nehemiah and kill anyone else involved. It would be doing the king a favor if they were actually rebelling against the king. So you would think with this type of accusation that Nehemiah would be a little tactful. He, he might be careful in how, uh, how softly he treads. Maybe he, would, you know, maybe he should ignore the taunts and kind of keep his head down and do the work that he's supposed to do and not make any waves, but that's not what Nehemiah does. Verse 20 says, Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. We know that Nehemiah has some guts. We've seen it in chapter 1, the way that he asks the king for everything that he needs. But here we're seeing that Nehemiah really is not just a pencil pusher. He isn't just making things happen behind the scenes or moving monies around and coordinating the project from behind a desk. I mean, he is in the front lines. Look what he says. The God of heaven will make us prosper. In other words, God will see this through. Again, he could have flexed the king's blessing and protection, but he appeals to the greatest authority that there is. Then he goes on to say, we his servants will arise and build. Translation, we will arise and build. We, we will do the work that God has called us to do. We're not going to be threatened or scared off by you. And then lastly, he says, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. A way to understand this is uh, you have nothing on us. <laughs> you have no part in what we're doing here. All of your efforts will have no effect on this rebuilding. Jerusalem will be rebuilt, period. 
Why? Because God promised it. He's overseeing it. He's blessed it. He's protecting us, and he will see it to its completion. And you, puffing up your chest and trying to scare us, you have no portion, no right, no claim here in Jerusalem. Effectively saying, go home. That's what Nehemiah says to these three guys, these three powerful guys. Mercy House, I don't know who your Sanbalat and your Tobiah and your Geshem are. Who in your life is worthy of this level of opposition? Someone who mocks you and ridicules you, opposes you as you try to live out your calling as a Christian. It might be your professor. It might be a neighbor. It might be a coworker of yours. It might be a random person you interact with, someone that messaged you online. It might be someone that you thought was a friend. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a spouse. It might even be Satan himself feeding you lies, communicating that you're worthless, that you deserve to sit in the rubble of your sin, that you shouldn't even try to repent and rebuild because there is no hope for you. Whoever that person is, whatever that lie is, this is how you respond to it. You do not quietly take it in and and then keep your head down. What we do is we respond with gospel truths, with the realities that we know are biblical principles and biblical truths, like the fact that God will make us prosper in the work that he has called us to do. God will bless us as we live out our lives in faithful obedience to him. And as we build our lives on the foundation of Christ, we will be able to stand firm. And despite the opposition, we will arise and build and live out the calling that God has placed on our lives. And to any opposition, any lie that comes your way, what you say is, you have no portion, you have no right, and you have no claim on me. This leads us to communion. When when we take communion, it helps us understand how true this is for us. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. Communion helps us remember that when we were dead in our sin, Satan did have a portion he, he had the right to heap guilt on us and hold shame over us. And he had claim on our lives because of our debt to sin. When we were in that place, before we put our faith in Jesus, we were powerless in our sin. We were defenseless against Satan. We had no rebuttal like Nehemiah had a rebuttal. We had no walls, no gates to guard us. But Jesus, who saw us in our guilt and our shame, he came from heaven to earth to make our problem his own problem, And he died for our sin in order to rebuild us, in order to take away the reproach that was over us, in order to be our wall, to be our gate, to protect us and guard us eternally from the lies, the attacks of the enemy. If you're not a Christian and you're here with us this morning, I'm so glad you're here. This is exactly what the gospel means, that refuge is in Jesus complete refuge. Like we have refuge in Jesus from the schemes of Satan, from, uh, from his lies, and this is an eternal refuge within God's heavenly kingdom. And you can receive this by faith, and when that happens, Jesus becomes our forever stronghold, guarding us, protecting us, allowing us to be safe. To the Christian, the question is, is how do you respond to opposition as you live out your calling? Earlier we said, are you living out your calling? 
If the, if the answer is yes, then how do you respond then to the opposition? You see Israel face opposition instantly. They resolve, yes, we're going to build, and then the next sentence is opposition. So what happens when we face opposition? And here lies from Satan. Do we just agree with it? Do we receive it and let it stop us from building God's kingdom? Maybe it's overwhelming for us as we sit in our rubble and assess the damage around us. So brothers and sisters, I, I want to encourage you to be inspired this morning to put your confidence in God, whose mighty hand is upon us as we follow him, who will make us prosper as we live out our lives for him. That's the confidence that we have to rebuild. This is not a sermon where your takeaway is, okay, I need to get my act together by my own bootstraps. It's a confidence in God giving you the ability through the Holy Spirit to walk in light and righteousness and to rebuild out of the rubble. That's what God does. He builds out of rubble. He takes from nothing and brings something. So my exhortation to you is to strengthen your hands for the good work. Roll up your sleeves, Mercy House, and let's arise and build together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and how you communicate your love and your care um, and your heart to us. Thank you that you're a God who never quits on us, God, but you're a God who allows us uh, to be rebuilt, God. Lord, we confess that we sit in rubble, God. There are parts of our lives that are broken, um, parts of our lives that are messy. Thank you that you are a God who is not turned away from monumental tasks, but you run into them, just like Nehemiah did, God. And Lord, I pray that you would help us uh, to bring our rubble to you, to invite you into our hearts and our lives, to clean out the rubble, and that you would, Lord, inspire us uh, in, in the confidence that we can have in you to build our lives on you, God. That, that, that we would build uh, a life of faith um, in who you are and what you call us to do, God. Help us to be like Nehemiah for others around us, Lord, as others are in messes and, and piles of rubble, Lord. Help us to be willing to go across the country to be with them, God, and to sit with them in their mess and to identify with their problems, God. Help us to be brothers and sisters to one another like that. God, ultimately, we look to you. We're thankful for what you have done to allow us to experience new life and to experience the rebuilding I pray as we take communion, Lord, that we would just receive this grace, God, and remember the great cost of our rebuilding, God. Thank you that you uh, promised to, to build your church, God. You will see it through. It will be done because you say that it will be done, and you are faithful and true. God, we love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.